Chapter 10 The Thirteenth Floor Elevator It rained that night on London, but by first light the sky was as clear and pale as still water, and the smoke from the city's engines rose straight up into the windless air. Wet decks shone silver in the sunrise, and all the banners of Tier 1 hung limp and still against their flagpoles. It was a fine spring morning, the morning that Valentine had been hoping for, and Catherine had been dreading. It was perfect flying weather. Although it was so early, crowds had gathered all along the edge of Tier 1 to watch the thirteenth-floor elevator lift off. As Gensch drove Catherine and her father over to the air key, she saw that Circle Park was crowded too. It looked as if the whole of High London had come to cheer Valentine on his way. None of them knew where he was going, of course, but as London sped eastward, the city's rumour mills had been grinding night and day. Everyone was sure that Valentine's expedition was connected with some huge prize that the Lord Mayor hoped to catch out in the central hunting ground. Temporary stands had been erected for the council and guilds, and when she and Dog had wished Father goodbye in the bustling shadows of the hangar, Catherine went to take her place with the historians— squeezed between Chudley Pomeroy and Dr. Arkengarth. All around her stood the great and good of London, the sober black robes of Father's Guild and the purple of the Guild of Merchants, sombre navigators in their neat green tunics, and a row of engineers robed and hooded in white rubber, looking like novelty erasers. Even Magnus Crome had risen to the occasion— and the Lord Mayor's ancient chain of office hung gleaming around his thin neck. Catherine wished they had all just stayed at home. It was difficult saying goodbye to someone when you were part of a great cheering mob all waving flags and blowing kisses. She stroked Dog's knobbly head and told him, Look, there's Father, going up the gangplank now. They'll start the engines in a moment. "'I just hope nothing goes wrong,' muttered Dr. Arkengarth. "'One hears stories about these airships suddenly going off, bang, for no reason.' "'Perhaps we should stand a little farther back,' suggested Miss Plym, the museum's twittery curator of furniture. "'Nonsense,' Catherine told them crossly. "'Nothing is going to go wrong.' Uh, yes, uh, do shut up, Arkengarth, you silly old coot, agreed Chudley Pomeroy, surprising her. Never fear, Miss Valentine, your father has the finest airship and the best pilots in the world. Nothing can go wrong. Catherine smiled gratefully at him, but she kept her fingers crossed just the same, and Dog caught something of her mood and started to whimper softly. From inside the hangar came the sound of hatches slamming shut and the rattle of boarding ladders being dragged clear. An expectant hush fell over the stands. Along the tier's edge, high London held its breath. Then, as the band struck up Rule Londinium, Valentine's ground crew began dragging the thirteenth-floor elevator out into the sunlight. A sleek, black dart whose armoured envelope shone like silk. On the open platform at the stern of the control gondola, Valentine stood waving. He saluted the ground crew and the flag-decked stands, and then smiled straight at Catherine, 
picking her face out of all the others without a moment's hesitation. She waved back frantically, and the crowd cheered themselves hoarse as the thirteenth-floor elevator's engine pods swiveled into takeoff position. The ground crew cast off the mooring hawsers, the propellers began to turn, and blizzards of confetti eddied in the downdrafts as the huge machine lifted into the air. Some apprentice historians spread out a banner reading Happy Valentine's Day, and the cheers went on and on, as if the crowds thought it was their love alone that was keeping the explorer airborne. Valentine! Valentine! But Valentine took no notice of the noise or the flags. He stood watching Catherine, one hand raised in farewell, until the airship was so high and far away that she could not make him out any more. At last, when the elevator was just a speck in the eastern sky and the stands were emptying, she wiped away her tears, took Dog's lead, and turned to go home. She was already missing her father, but she had a plan now. While he was away, she would make her own inquiries and find out who that mysterious girl had been and why she scared him so. Chapter 11 Air Haven Once he had washed and slept and had something to eat, Tom began to decide that adventuring might not be so bad after all. By sunrise he was already starting to forget the misery of his trek across the mud and imprisonment in Speedwell. The view from the Jenny Hanover's big forward windows as the airship flew between golden mountains of dawn-lit cloud was enough to make even the pain of Valentine's betrayal fade a little. At breakfast time, drinking hot chocolate with Miss Fang on the flight deck, he found that he was enjoying himself. As soon as the Jenny Hanover was safely out of the range of Speedwell's rockets, the aviatrix had become all smiles and kindness. She locked her airship on course and set about finding Tom a warm fleece-lined coat and making up a bed for him in the hold, a space high up inside the airship's envelope heaped with a cargo of sealskins from Spitzbergen. Then she led Hester into the medical bay and went to work on her injured leg. When Tom looked in on her after breakfast that morning, the girl was sleeping soundly under a white blanket. I gave her something for the pain, explained Miss Fang. She will sleep for hours, but you need have no fear for her. Tom stared at Hester's sleeping face. Somehow he had expected her to look better now that she had been washed and fed and had her leg fixed, but of course she was as hideous as ever. He has made a mess of her, your wicked Mr. Valentine, the aviatrix said, leading him back to the flight deck where she took the controls off their automatic setting. How do you know about Valentine? asked Tom. Oh, Everyone has heard about Thaddeus Valentine, she laughed. I know that he is London's greatest historian, and I also know that that is just a cover for his real work as Chrome's secret agent. That's not true, Tom started to say, still instinctively defending his ex-hero, but there had always been rumours that Valentine's expeditions involved something darker than mere archaeology, and now that he had seen the great man's ruthless handiwork, he believed them. He blushed, ashamed for Valentine, 
and ashamed of himself for having loved him. Miss Fang watched him with a faint, sympathetic smile. Hester told me a great deal more last night while I was tending to her wound, she said gently. You are both very lucky to be alive. I know, agreed Tom, but he could not help feeling uneasy that Hester had shared their story with this stranger. He sat down in the co-pilot's seat and studied the controls, a baffling array of knobs and switches and levers labelled in mixtures of Air Esperanto, Anglish, and Chinese. Above them, a little lacquered shrine had been fixed to the bulkhead, decorated with red ribbons and pictures of Miss Fang's ancestors. That smiling Manchu air merchant must be her father, he supposed. And had that red-haired lady from the ice wastes been her mum? So tell me, Tom, asked Miss Fang, setting the ship on a new course, where is London going? The question was unexpected. I don't know, Tom said. Oh, surely you must know something, she laughed. Your city has left its hidey-hole in the west, come back across the land bridge, and now it is whizzing off into the central hunting ground like a bat out of hull, as the saying goes. You must have heard at least a rumour, no? Her long eyes slid toward Tom, who licked his lips nervously, wondering what to say. He had never paid any attention to the stupid tales the other apprentices swapped about where London was heading. He really had no idea. And even if he had, he knew it would be wrong to go revealing his city's plans to mysterious foreign aviatrices. What if Miss Fang flew off and told some larger city where to lie in wait for London in exchange for a finder's fee? And yet, if he didn't tell her something, she might kick him off her airship, perhaps without even bothering to land it first. "'Prey!' he blurted out. "'The Guild of Navigators say there are lots and lots of prey in the Central Hunting Ground.' The red smile grew even broader. "'Really?' "'I heard it from the Head Navigator himself,' said Tom, growing bolder. Miss Fang nodded, beaming. Then she hauled on a long brass lever. Gas valves grumbled up inside the envelope, and Tom's ears popped as the Jenny Hanover started to descend, plunging into a thick white layer of cloud. Let me show you the central hunting ground, <laughs> she chuckled, checking the charts that were fastened to the bulkhead beside her shrine. Down and down, and then the cloud thinned and parted, and Tom saw the vast outcountry spread below him like a crumpled sheet of grey-brown paper, slashed with long blue shapes that were the flooded track marks of countless towns. For the first time since the airship lifted away from stains, he felt afraid. But Miss Fang murmured, Nothing to fear, Tom. He calmed himself and gazed out at the amazing view. Far to the north he could see the cold glitter of the ice wastes and the dark cones of the Tannhäuser fire mountains. He looked for London, and eventually thought he saw it, a tiny grey speck that raised a cloud of dust behind it as it trundled along, much farther off than he had hoped. 
There were other towns and cities, too, dotted here and there across the plain, or lurking in the shadows of half-eaten mountain ranges, but not nearly as many as he had expected. To the southeast there were none at all, just a dingy layer of mist above a tract of marshland, and beyond that the silvery shimmer of water. That is the great inland sea of Kazakh, said the aviatrix when he pointed to it. I'm sure you've heard the old land shanty. And in a lilting, high-pitched voice she sang, Beware, beware of the sea of Kazakh, for the town that goes near it will never come back. But Tom wasn't listening. He had noticed something much more terrible than any inland sea. Directly below, with the tiny shadow of the Jenny Hanover flickering across its skeletal girders, lay a dead city. It stood on ground scarred by the tracks of hundreds of smaller towns, tilting over at a strange angle, and as the Jenny Hanover swept down for a closer look, Tom realized that its tracks and gut were gone, and that its deck plates were being stripped out by a swarm of small towns that seethed in the shadows of its lower levels, tearing off huge rusting sections in their jaws and landing salvage parties whose blow-torches glittered and sparked in the shadows between the tiers like fairy lights on a quirkmas tree. There was a puff of smoke from one of the towns, and a rocket came winding up toward the airship and exploded a few hundred feet below. Miss Fang's hands moved swiftly over the controls, and Tom felt the ship lift again. Half the scavengers of the hunting ground are working on the wreck of Motoropolis, she said. And they are a jealous lot. Shoot at anybody who comes near, and when nobody does, they shoot at each other. But how did it get like that? asked Tom, staring back at the huge skeleton as the Jenny Hanover carried him up and away. It starved, said the aviatrix. It ran out of fuel, and as it stood motionless there, a pack of smaller towns came and started tearing it apart. The feeding frenzy has been going on for months, and I expect another city will come along soon and finish off the job. You see, Tom, there isn't enough prey to go around in the central hunting ground, so it can't be that that has brought London out of hiding. Tom twisted around to watch as the dead city fell behind. A pack of tiny predator suburbs were harrying the scavenger towns on the northwestern side, singling out the weakest and slowest, and charging after it. But before they caught it, the Jenny Hanover rose up again into the pure, clean world above the clouds, and the carcass of Motoropolis was hidden from view. When Miss Fang looked at him again, she was still smiling, but there was an odd gleam in her eyes. So... If it isn't prey that Magnus Crome is after, she said, what can it be? Tom shook his head. I'm only an apprentice historian, he confessed. Third class. I don't really know the head navigator. Hester mentioned something, the aviatrix went on. The thing Mr. Valentine took from her poor parents, Medusa, a strange name. Have you heard of it? Do you know what it means? Tom shook his head. 
and she watched him closely, watched his eyes until he felt as if she were looking right into his soul. Then she laughed. Well, no matter. I must get you to Airhaven, and we'll find a ship to take you home. Airhaven. It was one of the most famous towns of the whole Traction era, and when the warble of its homing beacon came over the radio that evening, Tom went racing forward to the flight deck. He met Hester in the companionway outside the sickbay, tousled and sleepy and limping. Anna Fang had done her best with a wounded leg, but she hadn't improved the girl's manners. She hid her face when she saw Tom, and only glared and grunted when he asked her how she felt. On the flight deck, the aviatrix turned to greet them with a radiant smile. Look, my dears, she said, pointing ahead through the big windows. Air haven. They went and stood behind her seat and looked, and far away across the sea of clouds, they saw the westering sun glint on a single tier of lightweight alloy and a nimbus of brightly coloured gas bags. Long ago, the town of Airhaven had decided to escape the hungry cities by taking to the sky. It was a trading post and meeting place for aviators now, drifting above the hunting ground all summer, then flying south to winter in warmer skies. Tom remembered how it had once anchored over London for a whole week, how the sightseeing balloons had gone up and down from Kensington Gardens and Circle Park, and how jealous he had been of people like Melephant, who were rich enough to take a trip in one and come back full of stories about the floating town. Now he was going there himself, and not just as a sightseer either. What a story he would be able to tell the other apprentices when he got home! Slowly the airship rose toward the town, and as the sun dipped behind the cloud banks in the west, Miss Fang cut her engines and let her drift in toward a docking strut, while harbour officers in sky-blue livery waved multicoloured flags to guide her safely to her berth. Behind them the dock was crowded with sightseers and aviators, and even a little gaggle of airship spotters who dutifully jotted down the Jenny Hanover's number in their notebooks as the mooring clamps engaged. A few moments later, Tom was stepping out into the twilight and the chill, thin air, gazing at the airships coming and going, elegant high liners and rusty scows, trim little air cutters with see-through envelopes and tiger-striped spice freighters from the Hundred Islands. Look, he said, pointing up at the rooftops, there's the floating exchange, and that church is St. Michael's in the sky. There's a picture of it in the London Museum. But Miss Fang had seen it many, many times before, and Hester just scowled at the crowds on the quayside and hid her face. The aviatrix locked the Jenny's hatches with a key that hung on a lanyard around her neck, but when a barefoot boy ran up and tugged at her coat, saying, "'Watch your airship for you, missus!' She laughed and dropped three square bronze coins into his palm. "'I won't let nobody sneak aboard,' he promised taking up his post beside the gangplank. Uniformed dockhands appeared, grinning at Miss Fang, but staring suspiciously at her new groundling friends. They checked that the newcomers had no metal toe-caps on their boots or lighted cigarettes about their persons, then led them back to the harbour office, where huge, crudely lettered notices insisted, 
No smoking. Turn off all electrics and make no sparks. Sparks were the terror of the air trade because of the danger that they might ignite the gas in the airship's envelopes. In Airhaven, even over-vigorous hair brushing was a serious crime, and all new arrivals had to sign strict safety agreements and convince the harbour master that they were not likely to burst into flames. At last, they were allowed up a metal stairway to the high street. Airhaven's single thoroughfare was a hoop of lightweight alloy deck plates lined with shops and stalls, chandleries, cafes, and airshipmen's hotels. Tom turned around and around, trying to take everything in and make sure he would remember it forever. He saw turbines whirling on every rooftop and mechanics crawling like spiders over the huge engine pods. The air was thick with the exotic smells of foreign food, and everywhere he looked there were aviators striding along with the careless confidence of people who had lived their whole lives in the sky their long coats fluttering behind them like leathery wings. Miss Fang pointed along the curve of the high street to a building with a sign in the shape of an airship. That's the gas bag and gondola, she told her companions. I'll buy you dinner, and then we'll find a friendly captain to take you back to London. They strode toward it, the aviatrix in the lead, Hester hiding from the world behind her upraised hand, Tom still looking about in wonder and thinking it a pity that his adventures would soon be over. He didn't notice a goshawk ninety circling among a shoal of larger vessels waiting for a berth. Even if he had, he would not have been able to read its registration numbers at this distance, or see that the insignia on its envelope was the red wheel of the Guild of Engineers. Chapter 12 The Gas Bag and Gondola The inn was big and dark and busy. The walls were decorated with airships in bottles and the propellers of famous old sky clippers with their names carefully painted on the blades. Nadezhna and Airy Mouse and Invisible Worm. Aviators clustered around the metal tables, talking of cargoes and the price of gas, there were Jains and Tibetans and Quorsa, Inuit and Air Tuareg, and fur-clad giants from the ice wastes. An Uyghur girl played slipstream serenade on her forty-string guitar, and now and then a loudspeaker would announce, Arrival on Strat 3, the idiot wind, fresh from the Nuevo Mayan Palatinates, with a cargo of chocolate and vanilla. Or... Now boarding at Strut 7, my Sharona, outbound for Archangel. Anna Fang stopped at a little shrine just inside the door and said her thanks to the gods of the sky for a safe journey. The god of aviators was a friendly-looking fellow. The fat red statue on the shrine reminded Tom of Chudley Pomeroy, but his wife, the Lady of the High Heavens, was cruel and tricky. If offended, she might brew up hurricanes or burst a gas cell. Anna made her an offering of rice cakes and lucky money, and Tom and Hester nodded their thank yous just in case. When they looked up, the aviatrix was already hurrying away from them toward a group of aviators at a corner table. Cora! she shouted, and by the time they caught up with her, 
she was being whirled around and around in the arms of a handsome young African and talking quickly in Air Esperanto. Tom was almost sure he heard her mention Medusa as she glanced back at him and Hester, but by the time they drew near, the talk had switched into English, and the African was saying, We rode high-level winds all the way from Zagwa, and shaking red Sahara sand out of his flying helmet to prove it. He was Captain Cora of the gunship Makile Mabembe, and he came from a static enclave in the Mountains of the Moon, an ally of the Anti-Traction League. Now he was bound for Shanguo, to begin a tour of duty in the League's great fortress at Batmunk Gompa. Tom was shocked at first to be sharing a table with a soldier of the League, but Cora seemed a good man, as kind and welcoming as Miss Fang herself. While she ordered food, he introduced his friends. The tall, gloomy one was Niels Lindström of the Garden Aeroplane Trap, and the beautiful Arab lady with the laugh was Yasmina Rashid of the Palmyrene privateer Zainab. Soon the aviators were all laughing together, reminding each other of battles above the Hundred Islands and drunken parties in the airmen's quarter on Panzerstadt Linz. And between stories, Anna Fang pushed dishes across the table to her guests. More battered dormouse, Tom? Hester, try some of this delicious deviled bat. While Tom poked the strange foreign food around his plate with a pair of wooden sticks he had been given instead of a knife and fork, Cora leaned close and said softly, So, are you and your girlfriend crewing aboard the Jenny now? No, no, Tom assured him quickly. I, I mean, no, she's not my girlfriend, and no, we are just passengers. He fumbled with some mashed locust and asked, do you know Miss Fang well? Oh, yes, laughed Cora. The whole air trade knows Anna, and the whole of the League, too, of course. In Shanguo, they call her Fung Wa, the wind flower. Tom wondered why Miss Fang would have a special name in Shanguo, but before he could ask, Cora went on. Do you know she built the Jenny Hanover herself? When she was just a girl, she and her parents had the bad luck to be aboard a town that was eaten by Archangel. They were put to work as slaves in the airship yards there. And over the years, she managed to sneak an engine here, a steering vane there, until she built herself the Jenny and escaped. Tom was impressed. She didn't say, he murmured, looking at the aviatrix in a new light. She doesn't talk about it said Cora. You see, her parents did not live to escape with her. She watched them die in the slave pits. Tom felt a rush of sympathy for poor Miss Fang, his fellow orphan. Was that why she smiled all the time, to hide her sorrow? And was that why she had rescued Hester and himself, to save them from her parents' fate? He smiled at her as kindly as he could, and she caught his eye and smiled back, and passed him a plate of crooked black legs. Here, Tom, try a sautéed tarantula. Arrival on Strut 14, blared the loudspeaker overhead. London airship GE-47, carrying passengers only. Tom jumped up, and his chair fell backward with a crash. 
he could remember the little fast-moving scout ships that the engineers used to survey London's tracks and superstructure, and he remembered how they didn't have names, just registration codes, and how all the codes started with GE. They've sent someone after us, he gasped. Miss Fang was rising to her feet as well. It might just be coincidence, she said. There must be lots of airships from London, and even if Valentine has sent someone after you, you are among friends. We are more than a match for your horrible beef burgers. Beef eaters, Tom corrected her automatically, although he knew that she had made the mistake deliberately just to break the tension. He saw Hester smile and felt glad that she was there and fiercely determined to protect her. Then all the lights went out. There were shouts, boos, a crash of falling crockery from the kitchens. The windows were dim, twilight-coloured shapes cut out of the dark. The electrics are off all over Airhaven, said Lindstrom's gloomy voice. The power plant must have failed. No, said Hester quickly. I know this trick. It's meant to create chaos and stop us leaving. Someone's here, coming for us. There was an edge of panic in her voice that Tom hadn't heard before, not even in the chase at Staines. Suddenly, he felt very frightened. From the far end of the room, where crowds of people were spilling out onto the moonlit high street, a sudden scream arose. Then came another, and a long crash of breaking glass, shrieks, curses, the clatter of chairs and tables falling. Two green lamps bobbed above the crowd, like corpse lanterns. That's no beef-eater, said Hester. Tom couldn't tell if she was frightened or relieved. Hester, sure, screeched a voice like a saw cutting metal. Over by the doorway a sudden cloud of vapour bloomed, and out of it stepped a stalker. It was seven feet tall, and beneath its coat shone metal armour. The flesh of its long face was pale, glistening with a slug-like film of mucus, and here and there a blue-white jag of bone showed through the skin. Its mouth was a slot full of metal teeth. Its nose and the top of its head were covered by a long metal skull-piece with tubes and flexes trailing down like dreadlocks, their ends plugged into ports on its chest. Its round glass eyes gave it a startled look, as if it had never gotten over the horrible surprise of what had happened to it. Because that was the worst thing about the stalkers. They had been human once, and somewhere beneath that iron cowl a human brain was trapped. It's impossible, Tom whimpered. There aren't any stalkers. They were all destroyed centuries ago. But the stalker stood there still, horribly real. Tom tried to back away, but he couldn't move. Something was trickling down his legs, as hot as spilled tea, and he realised that he had wet himself. The stalker came forward slowly, shoving aside the empty chairs and tables. Fallen glasses burst under its feet. From the shadows behind, an aviator swung at it with a sword— but the blade rebounded from its armour, and it smashed the man aside with a sweeping blow of one huge fist, not even bothering to glance back. 
Hester Shaw, it said. Thomas Natsworthy. It knows my name, he thought. I began Miss Fang, but even she seemed lost for words. She pulled Tom backward, while Cora and the others drew their swords and stepped between the creature and its prey. But Hester pushed past them. It's all right, she said in a strange, thin voice. I know him. Let me talk to him. The stalker swung its dead white face from Tom to Hester, lenses whirring inside mechanical eyes. Hester... "'Sure,' it said, caressing her name with its gas-leak hiss of a voice. "'Hello, Shrike,' said Hester. The great head tilted to stare down at her. A metal hand rose, hesitated, then touched her face, leaving streaks of oil. "'I'm sorry I never got the chance to say goodbye.' "'I... Work for the Lord Mayor of London now, said Shrike. He has sent me to kill you. Tom whimpered again. Hester gave a brittle little laugh. But you won't do it, will you, Shrike? He wouldn't kill me. Yes, said Shrike flatly, still staring down at her. No, Shrike, whispered Hester, and Miss Fang seized her chance. She drew a little fan-shaped sliver of metal from a pocket in the sleeve of her coat and sent it whirling toward the stalker's throat. It made an eerie moaning sound as it flew, unfolding into a shimmering, razor-edged disc. A Nuevo Mayan battle frisbee! gasped Tom, who had seen such weapons safe in glass cases in the weapons and warfare section at the museum. He knew that they could sever a man's neck at sixty paces, and he tensed, waiting for the stalker's skull to drop from its shoulders. But the frisbee just hit Shrike's armoured throat with a clang and lodged there, quivering. The slit of a mouth lengthened into a long smile, and the stalker darted forward quick as a lizard. Miss Fang sidestepped, jumped past it, and swung a high kick, but it was far too fast for her. Run! she shouted at Hester and Tom. Get back to the Jenny! I'll follow! What else could they do? They ran. The thing snatched at them as they ducked past, but Cora was there to grab its arm, and Niels Lindstrom swung his sword at its face. The stalker flung Cora off and raised its hand. There were sparks and a shriek of metal on metal, and Lindstrom dropped the broken sword and howled and clutched his arm. It threw him aside and lifted Anna off her feet as she came at it again, swinging her hard against Cora and Yasmina when they rushed to her aid. "'Miss Fang!' shouted Tom. For a moment he thought of going back, but he knew enough about stalkers to know that there was nothing he could do. He ran after Hester over a heap of bodies in the doorway and out into shadows and twilight and the frightened milling crowds. A siren was keening mournfully. There was acrid smoke on the breeze, and over by the power plant he thought he saw the flicker of the thing all aviators feared the most, fire. I don't understand, 
gasped Hester, talking to herself, not Tom. He wouldn't kill me. He wouldn't. But she kept running, and together they dashed out onto Strut 7, where the Jenny Hanover was waiting for them. But Shrike had already made certain that the little airship would not be going anywhere that night. The envelope had been slashed, the cowling of the starboard engine pod had been wrenched open like an old tin can, and a spaghetti of torn wiring spilled out onto the quay. Among it lay the broken body of the boy Miss Fang had paid to guard her ship. Tom stood staring at the wreckage. Behind him, faintly, growing closer, footsteps trod the metal deck. Pung, 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 pung. He looked around for Hester, and found her gone. Limping away along the docking ring, running downhill, he realized, for the damaged airtown was developing a worrying tilt. He shouted her name and sprinted after her, following her out onto a neighboring strut. A tattered-looking balloon had just arrived there, spilling out a family of startled sightseers who weren't sure if the darkness and the shouting meant an emergency or some sort of carnival. Hester shouldered her way through them and grabbed the balloonist by his goggles, heaving him out of his basket. It sagged away from the key as she leaped in. Stop! Thieves! Hijackers! Help! The balloonist was shouting, but all Tom could hear was that faint, appalling pung, 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 approaching fast along the high street. Tom! Come on! He summoned all his courage and leaped after Hester. She was fumbling at the mooring ropes as he landed in the bottom of the basket. Throw everything overboard, she shouted at him. He did as he was told, and the balloon lurched upward, level with the first-floor windows, with the rooftops, with the spire of St. Michael's. Soon Airhaven was a doughnut of darkness, falling away behind them and below. And Shrike was just a speck, his green eyes glowing, as he stalked out along the strut to watch them go. Chapter 13 The Resurrected Man In the Dark Ages, before the dawn of the Traction Era, nomad empires had battled one another across the volcano maze of Europe. It was they who had built the Stalkers, dragging dead warriors off the battlefields and bringing them back to a sort of life by wiring weird old-tech machines into their nervous systems. The empires were long forgotten, but the terrible resurrected men were not. Tom could remember playing at being one when he was a child in the guild orphanage, stomping about with his arms held out straight in front of him, shouting, I am a stalker, exterminate, until Miss Plym came and told him to keep the noise down but he had never expected to meet one. As the stolen balloon scudded eastward on the night wind, he sat shuddering in the swaying basket, twisted sideways so that Hester wouldn't see the wet stain on his breeches, and said, I thought they all died hundreds of years ago. I thought they were all destroyed in battles or went mad and tore themselves apart. Not Shrike, said Hester. And he knew you. Of course he did, she said. We're old friends, Shrike and me. She had met him the morning after her parents died, 
the morning when she woke up on the shores of the hunting ground in the whispering rain. She had no idea how she came to be there, and the pain in her head was so bad that she could barely move or think. Drawn up nearby was the smallest, filthiest town that she had ever seen. People with big wicker baskets on their backs were coming down out of it on ladders and gangplanks and sifting through the flotsam on the tide line before returning with their baskets full of scrap and driftwood. A few were carrying her father's rowboat away, and it wasn't long before some of them discovered Hester. Two men came and looked down at her. One was a typical scavenger, small and filthy, with bits of an old bug piled in his basket. After he had peered at her for a while, he stepped back and said to his companion, "'Sorry, Mr. Shrike. I thought she might be one for your collection, but she's flesh and blood all right.' He turned and stumped away across the steaming garbage, losing all interest in Hester. He only wanted stuff he could sell, and there was no value in a half-dead child. Old bug tires now, those were worth something. The other man stayed where he was, looking down at Hester. It was only when he reached down and touched her face, and she felt the cold, hard iron beneath his gloves, that she realized he was not really a man at all. When he spoke, his voice sounded like a wire brush being scraped across a blackboard. You can't stay here, child, he said, and picked her up and slung her over his shoulder and took her aboard the town. It was called Stroll, and it was home to fifty tough, dust-hardened scavengers who robbed old tech sites when they could find them and scrounged salvage from the leavings of larger towns when they could not. Shrike lived with them, but he was no scavenger. When criminals from one of the great traction cities escaped into the outcountry, Shrike would track them and cut off their heads, which he carefully preserved. When he crossed that city's path again, he would take the head to the authorities and collect his reward. Why he bothered to rescue her, Hester never did discover. It could not have been out of pity, for he had none. The only sign of tenderness she ever saw in him was when he busied himself with his collection. He was fascinated by old automata and mechanical toys, and he would buy any that passing scavengers brought to him. His ramshackle quarters in Stroll were full of them. Animals, knights in armour, clockwork soldiers with keys in their backs, even a life-size angel of death pulled from some elaborate clock. But his favourites were all women or children, beautiful ladies in moth-eaten gowns, and pretty girls and boys with porcelain faces. All night long Shrike would patiently dismantle and repair them, exploring the intricate escapements of their hearts, as if searching for some clue to the workings of his own. Sometimes it seemed to Hester that she, too, was part of his collection. Did she remind him of the wounds that he had suffered on the battlefields of forgotten wars when he had still been human? She shared his home for five long years, while her face healed badly into a permanent ruined scowl, and her memories came slowly back to her. Some were startlingly clear, the waves on the shores of Oak Island, her mum's voice, the moor wind, with its smells of wet grass and the dung of animals. 
Others were murky and hard to understand. They flashed into her mind just as she was falling asleep, or caught her unawares while she wandered amongst the silent mechanical figures in Shrike's house. Blood on the star charts. A metallic noise. A man's long, handsome face with sea-grey eyes. They were broken shards of memory, and they had to be carefully collected and pieced together, just like the bits of machinery the scavengers dug up. It was not until she overheard some men telling stories about the great Thaddeus Valentine that she started to make sense of it all. She found that she recognized that name. It was the name of the man who had killed her mum and dad and turned her into a monster. She knew what she had to do without even having to think about it. She went to Shrike and told him she wanted to go after Valentine. You must not, was all the stalker said. You'll be killed. Then come with me, she had pleaded, but he would not. He had heard about London and about Magnus Crome's love of technology. He thought that if he went there, the Guild of Engineers would overpower him and cut him into pieces to study in their secret laboratories. You must not go, was all that he would say. So she went anyway, waiting till he was busy with his automata, then slipping out of a window and out of stroll, and setting off across the wintry outcountry with a stolen knife in her belt in search of London and revenge. I've never seen him since that, she told Tom, shivering in the basket of the stolen balloon. Stroll was down on the shores of the Anglish Sea when I left, but here Shrike is, working for Magnus Crome and wanting to kill me. It doesn't make sense. Maybe you hurt his feelings when he ran away suggested Tom. Shrike doesn't have feelings, said Hester. They cleaned all his memories and feelings away when they made a stalker of him. She sounds as if she envies him, thought Tom. But at least the sound of her voice had helped to calm him, and he had stopped shaking. He sat and listened to the wind sigh through the balloon's rigging. There was a black stain on the western clouds that he thought must be the smoke from Airhaven, had the aviators managed to get the fires under control, or had their town been destroyed? And what about Anna Fang? He realized that Shrike had probably murdered her, along with all her friends. That kind, laughing aviatrix was dead, as dead as his own parents. It was as if there was a curse on him that destroyed everybody who was kind to him. If only he had never met Valentine, if only he had stayed safely in the museum where he belonged. She might be all right, said Hester suddenly, as if she had guessed what he was thinking about. I think Shrike was just playing with her. He didn't have his claws out or anything. He's got claws? As long as she didn't annoy him too much, he probably wouldn't waste time killing her. What about Airhaven? I suppose if it's really badly damaged, it'll put down somewhere for repairs. Tom nodded. Then a happy thought occurred to him. Do you think Miss Fang'll come after us? I don't know, said Hester. But Shrike will. Tom looked over his shoulder again, horrified. Still, she said, at least we're heading in the right direction for London. He peered gingerly over the edge of the basket. 
The clouds lay below them like a white eiderdown drawn across the land, hiding anything that might give a clue as to where they were or where they were going. How can you tell? he asked. From the stars, of course, said Hester. Mum showed me. She was an aviator too, remember? She'd been all over the place. She even went to America once. You have to use the stars to find your way in places like that, where they don't have charts or landmarks. Look, that's the pole star, and that constellation is what the ancients used to call the Great Bear, but most people nowadays call it the city. And if we keep that one to starboard, we'll know we're heading northeast. There are so many, he said, trying to follow her pointing finger. Here, above the clouds, without veils of city smoke and out-country dust to hide it, the night sky sparkled with a million cold points of light. I never knew there were so many stars before. They're all suns, burning away far out in space, thousands and thousands of miles away, said Hester, and Tom had the feeling that she felt proud to show him how much she knew except for the ones that aren't really stars at all. Some of the really bright ones are mechanical moons that the ancients put up into orbit thousands of years ago, still circling and circling the poor old earth. Tom stared up at the glittering dark. And what's that one? he asked, pointing to a bright star low in the west. Hester looked at it, and her smile faded away. He saw her hands clench into fists. That one, she said, that's an airship, and it's coming after us. Perhaps Miss Fang has come to rescue us, said Tom hopefully. But the distant airship was gaining quickly, and in another few minutes they could see that it was a small London-built scout ship, a Spudbury Sunbeam or a Goshawk 90. They could almost feel Shrike's green eyes watching them across the deserts of the sky. Hester started fumbling with the rusty wheels and levers that controlled the gas pressure in the balloon. After a few seconds, she found the one she wanted, and a fierce hiss came from somewhere overhead. "'What are you doing?' squeaked Tom. "'You'll let the gas out! We'll crash!' "'I'm hiding us from Shrike,' said the girl, and she opened the valve still farther. Looking up, Tom saw the gas bag start to sag. He glanced back at the pursuing airship. It was gaining, but it was still a few miles away. Hopefully from that distance it would look as if some accident had struck the balloon. Hopefully Shrike would not guess Hester's plan. Hopefully his little ship was not armed with rocket projectors. And then they sank down into the clouds and could see nothing but swirling dark billows, and sometimes a quick glimpse of the moon scudding dimly above them. The basket creaked, and the envelope flapped, and the gas valve hissed like a tetchy snake. "'When we touch down, get out of the basket as quick as you can,' said Hester. "'Yes,' he said. And then, "'But you mean we're going to leave the balloon?' "'We don't stand a chance against Shrike in the air,' she explained. "'Hopefully on the ground I can outwit him.' "'On the ground?' cried Tom. Oh, not the out-country again! The balloon was sinking fast. They saw the black landscape looming up below, dark blots of vegetation and a few thin glimmers of moonlight. Overhead, thick clouds were racing into the east, 
there was no sign of Shrike's airship. Tom braced himself. The ground was a hundred feet below, then fifty, then ten. Branches came rattling and scraping along the keel, and the basket bucked and plunged, crashing against muddy earth and leaping up into the sky and down again and up. Jump! screamed Hester the next time it touched down. He jumped, falling through scratchy branches into a soft mattress of mud. The balloon shot upward again, and for a moment he was afraid that Hester had abandoned him to perish on the bare earth. Hester! he shouted, so loud it hurt his throat. Hester! And then there was a rustling in the scrub away to his left, and she was limping toward him. Oh, thank Quirk, he whispered. He expected her to stop and sit down with him to rest a while, and thank the gods for dropping them onto soft, wet earth instead of hard stone. Instead, she walked straight past him, limping away toward the northeast. Stop! shouted Tom, still too winded and shivery to even stand. Wait! Where are you going? She looked back at him as if he were mad. London! she said. Tom rolled onto his back and groaned, gathering his strength for another weary trek. Above him, freed of their weight, the balloon was returning to the sky, a dark teardrop that was quickly swallowed into the belly of the clouds. A few moments later, he heard the purr of engines as Shrike's airship went hurrying after it. Then there were only the night and the cold wind and rags of moonlight prowling the broken hills. Chapter 14 The Guild Hall Catherine decided to start at the top. The day after her father left London, she sent a message up the pneumatic tube system to the Lord Mayor's office from the terminal in her father's room, and half an hour later a reply came back from Crome's secretary, the Lord Mayor would see Miss Valentine at noon. Catherine went to her dressing room and put on her most business-like clothes, her narrow black trousers and her grey coat with the shoulder fins. She tied back her hair with a clip made from the taillights of an ancient car and fetched out a stylish hat with trailing ear flaps that she had bought six weeks before but hadn't got around to wearing yet. She put colour on her lips and soft oblongs of rouge high on her cheekbones, and painted a little blue triangle between her eyebrows, a mock guild mark like the fashionable ladies wore. She found a notebook and a pencil, and slipped them both into one of father's important-looking black briefcases, along with the pass he had given her on her fifteenth birthday, the gold pass that allowed her access to almost every part of London. Then she studied her appearance in the mirror, imagining herself a few weeks from now going to meet the returning expedition. She would be able to tell father, It's all right now. I understand everything. You needn't be afraid any more. At a quarter to twelve, she walked with Dog to the elevator station in Quirk Circus, enjoying the looks that people gave her as she passed. There goes Miss Catherine Valentine, she imagined them saying. Off to see the Lord Mayor. The elevator staff all knew her face, and they smiled and said, Good morning, Miss Catherine, and patted Dog and didn't bother looking at her pass as she boarded the 11.52 for top tier. The elevator hummed upward. 
she walked briskly across Paternoster Square, where Dog stared thoughtfully at the wheeling pigeons and pricked up his ears at the sounds of the repair work going on inside St. Paul's. Soon she was climbing the steps of the Guildhall and being ushered into a tiny internal elevator, and at one minute to twelve she was shown through the circular bronze door of the Lord Mayor's private office. Ah, Miss Valentine, you are one minute early. Crome glanced up at her from the far side of his huge desk and went back to the report that he had been reading. Behind his head was a round window with a view of St. Paul's, looking wavery and unreal through the thick glass, like a sunken temple seen through clear water. Sunlight shone dimly on the tarnished bronze panels of the office walls. There were no pictures, no hangings or decorations of any sort, and the floor was bare metal. Catherine shivered, feeling the cold rise up through the soles of her shoes. The Lord Mayor kept her waiting for fifty-nine silent seconds that seemed to stretch on forever. She was feeling thoroughly uncomfortable by the time he set down the report. He smiled faintly, like somebody who had never seen a smile, but had read a book on how to do it. You will be glad to hear that I have just received a coded radio signal sent from your father's expedition shortly before he flew out of range he said. All is well aboard the thirteenth-floor elevator. Good, said Catherine, knowing that it would be the last she would hear of father until he was on his way home. Even the engineers had never been able to send radio signals more than a few hundred miles. Was there anything else? asked Crome. Yes, said Catherine, and hesitated, afraid that she was going to sound foolish. Faced with Crome's cold office and still colder smile, she found herself wishing she had not put on so much makeup or worn these stiff, formal clothes. But this was what she had come here for, after all. She blurted out, I want to know about that girl, and why she tried to kill my father. The Lord Mayor's smile vanished. Your father has never seen fit to tell me who she is. I have no idea why she is so keen to murder him. Do you think it is something to do with Medusa? Crome's gaze grew a few degrees colder. That matter does not concern you, he snapped. What has Valentine told you? Nothing, said Catherine, getting flustered. But I can see he's scared, and I need to know why, because— Listen to me, child, said Crome standing up and coming around the desk at her. Thin hands gripped her shoulders. If Valentine has secrets from you, it is for good reason. There are aspects of his work that you could not begin to understand. Remember, he started out with nothing. He was a mere out-country scavenger before I took an interest in him. Do you want to see him reduced to that again, or worse— Catherine felt as if he had slapped her. Her face burned red with anger, but she controlled herself. Go home and wait for his return, ordered Crome, and leave grown-up matters to those who understand them. Don't speak to anyone about the girl or Medusa. Grown-up matters, thought Catherine angrily. How old does he think I am? 
but she bowed her head and said meekly, Yes, Lord Mayor, and come along, dog. And do not bring that animal to top tier again, called Crome, his voice following her into the outer office, where the secretaries turned to stare at her furious, tearful face. Riding the elevator back to Quirk Circus, she whispered in her wolf's ear, We'll show him, dog. Instead of going straight home, she called in at the Temple of Cleo on the edge of Circle Park. There, in the scented darkness, she calmed herself and tried to work out what to do next. Ever since Nicholas Quirk had been declared a god, most Londoners had stopped giving much thought to the older gods and goddesses, and so Catherine had the temple to herself. She liked Cleo, who had been her mother's goddess back in Puerto Angeles, and whose statue looked a bit like Mama too, with its kind dark eyes and patient smile. She remembered what Mama had taught her, about how the poor goddess was being blown constantly backward into the future by the storm of progress, but how she could reach back sometimes and inspire people to change the whole course of history. Looking up now at the statue's gentle face, she said, What must I do, Cleo? How can I help father if the Lord Mayor won't tell me anything? She hadn't really expected an answer, and none came, so she said a quick prayer for father and another for poor Tom Natsworthy, and made her offerings and left. It wasn't until she was halfway back to Cleo House that the idea struck her, a thought so unexpected that it could have been sent to her by the goddess herself. She remembered how, as she ran toward the waste chutes on the night Tom fell, she had passed someone heading in the other direction, a young apprentice engineer, looking so white and shocked that she was sure he must have witnessed what happened. She hurried homeward through the sunlit park. That young engineer would have the answer. She would go back to the gut and find him. She would find out what was going on without any help from wicked old Magnus Chrome.